You're listening to theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Welcome back to our coverage of the Outdoor Show 2007. At this year's show, there was a big focus on careers in the outdoors industry. We start this podcast by looking at some of the training programs and job opportunities that are available for those interested in the great outdoors. I started by talking to Mal Creasy from Mountain Leader Training England. If I was interested in becoming a mountain leader, just how would I go about it? Well, basically, it's, it's um, hopefully lots of people have got experience beforehand and are really committed to the outdoors and committed to mountaineering. And the more experience somebody has, the easier they will find it. Um, it, it it's a logbook-based award where, uh, to remain valid, then we expect people to, to keep, keep their entries up to date and, of course, keep the first aid certificate up to date, which is just another part of it. Um, so, in terms of uh, somebody who's been walking around the hills for years, it should be quite easy just to do the week's training course um, and then some few months later just do the week's assessment course. Uh, and thereafter they'll be, they'll be qualified. It's a UK-based award as well. So that's two weeks' intensive work, really. And how much is that going to cost me? Well, you might think it's two weeks' intensive work, but it's not work if you're going in the hills and you enjoy it. It's two, it's two weeks away from work. Um, well, to register for one of the schemes, we have three schemes in operation. Um, to register for one of the schemes is 27 quid at the moment. And that's a one-off fee for life. We don't come back to anybody uh, year on uh, year after year. Uh, and of course, we all expect people. Well, people have to be members of the British Mountaineering Council as well. So, okay, just just under 50 quid for, for one of the awards. The training courses vary from maybe 250 quid self-catering, 300, 350 quid if it's a better style accommodation. Um, the assessment course with a similar sort of range. We we don't control that at all. That between the the first months are registered. They go straight to the provider for the training course, and then they go to the um, the, uh, the the assessment centre for the assessment. We have all we do is keep the records. Okay, it's important for people to realise that there's a variety of different training providers here, and then the assessors are separate again, aren't they? So, I mean, to if I was budgeting kind of at the top end, about a thousand pounds would see me through that process. Yeah, that's, that's sort of the top side of it, I think, really. <clears throat> um, but at the end of the day, you've got people who are responsible for other people's lives on the mountain. And, and although, I mean, there are cheaper ways of doing it, and there are ways of very experienced people to, to uh, short-circuit the process by uh, applying for exemption. I, I don't recommend that, but people can do it if they've got years of experience. Uh, so it, it, could be, it could be less than half that. And, of course... Um, many colleges these days run uh, outdoor outdoor programs, uh, and many of them do do the Mountain Leader Award or the Single Pitch Award as part of their outdoor course. And of course, there's some also um, separate winter skills training, isn't it? Well, that's a separate course. So the, the, the winter ML, um, yes, that's a lot more committing because it reflects the weather and the conditions that can be in Scotland. A lot more serious. Um, 
and of course that the, the, the summer ML is the baseline that people need to progress to the, any of the international well the international mountain leader award or uh, uh, as far as the MIA mountain instructor award or the MIC uh, or anything like that so it is the baseline now if, if I was thinking about um, doing this as a career or thinking about following through I mean and I walk towards the international mountain leader uh, award what kind of doors would that open for me well with an international mountain leader they can work um, well exactly in Europe principally or leading uh, trekking uh, peaks oh, sorry trekking in uh, third world countries, whatever. It doesn't cover sort of um, technical climbing, but it's more an undulating territory, where territory without the sharp pointy bits of, of, the, uh, of any of the other awards. Good, and is this getting more popular? Yeah, it, it is. It's certainly, say it, it, it is a growth industry, there's lots of people going out there. Um, and there are some people who are perhaps doing this in in their later years when they have perhaps a little bit more time and perhaps need to earn a little bit but not too much so they could work with a, on a short season or a, a short term basis with that. So it's not just something for the youngsters, anybody who really wants to spend their time out in the hills, this is a way of doing it and getting a little bit of money to, to keep you out there. Absolutely, I, um, I believe this very week uh, I know there's a lady of uh, 67 years young has gone for an ML assessment. So that, that says something, doesn't it? Fantastic. Now, if we wanted to find out more about this, um, you've got a website, no doubt? Uh, yes, www.mlte.org. Or if you want uh, another one, um, mltuk.org. That will have all the information. And if people are um, interested in careers in the outdoors, we do have um, an, inf an information sheet. So if uh, just contact us uh, and ask for that careers information sheet. Okay, so that's the place to go, www.mlte.org, and you'll be able to pick up all the contacts and all the links in there. Mal, thanks very much for talking. Okay, pleasure. Thank you. As you heard in the interview there, many local colleges now offer mountain leader training programmes, as well as a whole host of other outdoor activity qualifications. So have a look around and see what you can find. But what about working in the outdoors? How about leading walking holidays? I spoke to Pete Ellis. Well, I, I lead for uh, HF holidays, um, and there's plenty of opportunities to lead, either in the UK or in Europe. Um, in the UK, we have about 17 uh, houses uh, where we lead holidays, um, and each house um, there's usually three or four levels of walks, um, so each of those levels of walk will require a leader. Um, so you work as a team, basically, um, leading walks at easier, medium or harder level uh, at each of our locations. And they'll run, they range from being in the Lowlands, um, uh, Sussex, Cotswolds, um, right the way through to the high levels of Scotland, uh, Glencoe and the Isle of Arran. So there's the whole range there. And, and as a walking leader, is this something that will occupy you for, what, part of the year or much of the year? Uh, a lot of walks leaders just do uh, one or two weeks a year. Um, some do many more. Um, there are some that do 15, 20 weeks a year. Um, but a lot of people just do uh, a week or two as part of their annual leave. Um, a chance to get out into the, uh, the outdoors, um, uh, enjoyable walking, enjoyable company, uh, taking people around the countryside and showing them things, uh, pointing out views um, and other things to do with the countryside. 
So it's a different way of taking a holiday, perhaps a way of putting something back into the general outdoor community. Very much so. Somebody once said to me that uh, a lot of people take a lot of things out of life, and to me, doing these holidays is a way of putting things back into life. Okay, now, what kind of training and preparation have you had to do to be able to, to lead these walks? Uh, HF uh, run their own assessment uh, programme, so uh, we get people who come to us with, how, with uh, no mountaineering qualifications, but they may have led a few groups uh, or just friends in the hills or got themselves around the hills. Uh, but we have other people who come with uh, summer MLs, IMLs, even MIC sometimes. Um, but HF do their own assessments, um, run over three or four day period, um, and we make our decisions based on that. So there's a sense quite a, a lot of accreditation of quite practical knowledge and experience? Um, quite a bit. You need evidence that you can uh, get yourself or um, friends, groups of friends around the hills, and then we assess your skills during this three-day, three-four-day assessment. So anybody who's thinking perhaps of uh, embarking on the uh, full set of qualifications for maybe winter summer walking, or maybe thinking of this career, a good way of getting a feel for it might be to um, work with you for a few weeks at a time. Yeah, it's a very good way. I mean, I got myself into uh, leading the outdoors. Um, initially, uh, change of circumstances, HF were advertising for leaders, so I applied. I'd done a lot of solo stuff in Wales and Scotland and Dartmoor. I'd, let, I'd been out on the hills with friends and got them and myself back in one piece. So I applied to HF, got through, and after that I've uh, developed the logbook. I've done summer ML and IML, and now I lead in the uh, UK and Europe uh, and the Alps, Tenerife, places like that. Been to New Zealand as well. So you can make a career career out of it. And so, how many weeks of the year are you literally out walking you know, here or elsewhere in the world? Um, me personally, uh, I think last year I did 210 days on the hills last year, which amounted to about 1,700 miles. But that's not as much as uh, that's probably more than most that most HF leaders do in a year. Now, there'll be a lot of people listening to this quite envious of the notion that you could spend 200 days out on the hills, but you can make a living doing this. Um, there are some, uh, for HF purposes, there are some paid contracts, but most of it is voluntary. Um, I do some paid contracts, but I have to confess I have a second flat which I let out, so I live off that really. So that's the way to do it, let off your, let off your premises and uh, head for the hills. And no dependence. <laughs> Hello, one of the most popular stores here is the Nickwack store, and judging by the, um, how busy it is now, lots of people looking to renew their kit. I've got Dave from Nickwacks here, who's um, going to tell us about what's new for this year. Dave. Hello there. Well, Nickwacks already makes cleaners and proofers for most of the outdoor kit that people use, but what's new this year is we've got cleaners for the wicking base layer shirts that we all wear next to our skin when we're out on the hill. We have base wash for synthetic base layers and wool wash for the merino wool that's becoming increasingly more popular. Okay, now, so what's the advantage of using, let's say, a merino nickwax wash than using, you know, commercial detergents? Well, the problem with your everyday washing powder, good though they are, cheap though they are, is it's a bit of a lottery. It might contain bleach, it might contain fabric softeners, we just don't know. And with so many products on the market, in the laundry aisles of supermarkets, we can't be quite sure. With the Nickwax Wool Wash, what you get is a product that's specifically designed for wool. It softens, it cleans really well, it gets rid of nasty smells and BO smells, and it also improves the wicking, which is exactly what you want on a shirt that's next to skin.
Okay. And again, there's a version for synthetics as well. That's right. Very similar in what it does, but the, the recipe has been tweaked a little bit for the synthetic base wash because synthetic uh, shirts tend to be a bit more prone to um, odours, shall we say. So it's got a lot more of the odour stuff, but again, it improves the wicking and cleans really well. Now, you've also got, I see here, um, cotton proof and down proof. Now, down proof, I mean, down is something you really shouldn't get wet, is it? Well, that's it, and that's probably the reason why you should be proofing it. Down works fantastically well, but when it's damp, it can be a little bit compromised. And so we have the down wash to clean it because we tend to wear our down jackets throughout the winter. They get grubby, and giving them a clean is a good idea. The proofer just means that we proof the feathers on the inside and the lightweight nylon on the outside so that if we are caught in a shower of rain, then it's not going to go soggy and damp in a big squib. Um, and also, um, from... Uh, any sweat or anything in the body doesn't get absorbed into it so it just helps to keep what should be dry really dry and um, a lot of us get a bit worried about washing our down gear which means that you know sleeping bags get a bit antisocial um, after a while but this down wash product is easy to use isn't it? it's very effective but you do have to give the product time to dry out afterwards well, absolutely, and this is the, the area where down where that probably causes people concern. The rule of thumb that we would normally say is if it's a down jacket or gilet, then you can wash it in the washing machine at home, and there's probably enough space in a domestic tumble dryer to dry it out. Use a low heat, a long period of time, and occasionally take the garment out and give it a good shake and a fluff up to fluff up the feathers. Larger items like sleeping bags can be a bit trickier. We think you either need to go to Laundrette where they have larger washing machines and tumble dryers or get it sent away professionally for someone like Franklin's of Sheffield who you know will do a professional job. Now, um, one of the things that um, uh, those of us that have discovered Nick Wax uh, use an awful lot of is Tech Wash. And um, you just explain just the difference between Tech Wash and, um, you know, another household detergent. Okay. Well... Uh, tech Wash is a pure soap, and many of the cleaners we have at home are detergents. And detergents, whilst they're very, very good at cleaning, they will interfere with the water repellency that you have on your Gore-Tex jacket, event jacket, whatever waterproof you choose to have. The problem is, if you use a washing powder, uh, it's going to interfere with the water repellency. Tech Wash is designed to clean the jacket really well without compromising the water repellency that you need to keep you dry. And one of the things that we've been selling very successfully here at the show is a large, big value bottle, a one-litre size, that not every outdoor shop has, but we're trying to educate them. For many people who've maybe got a jacket and trousers, and their wife or partner's got a jacket and trousers, there might be a lot of garments that need cleaning, and it makes economic sense. It's a lot cheaper to buy them in the big value bottles we have here. Yeah, I always pick up one of those when I'm in Snowdonia or somewhere like that. It makes a big, big difference. Now, um, there's loads and loads of stuff here, almost more kinds of lotions and potions than you could imagine. But there's um, also quite a lot of stuff for uh, reproofing tents and um, UV protection. Again, um, how, uh, how important is this, Dave, and how effective is it? Well, I'm sure most people would understand the reason for uh, why they'd need to proof a tent, to keep the rain off it so the tent dries quickly. Um, means that when you pack it down, it, you're not packing it away as damp as it might be, less chance of mildew. But also, the water doesn't come through while you're camping in it. Now, we have tent and gear proof, which is a standard tent proofer that you can apply to a wet tent on a campsite. I'm sure that's something that I've certainly experienced while camping in Britain and many other people will as well. But what we also do is UV proof. 
UV proof is still a waterproof. It's got a much higher speck of proofing, and it's also got UV protectors in to block out the, uh, the, the ultraviolet light. And ultraviolet light can do a lot of damage to a tent, particularly if you're camping out in very warm, sunny climates for a couple of years. Absolutely. I've seen examples of tents on display at camping shops where by the end of the summer you can walk up to it and poke your finger through the material of the tent because the fabric has been rotted by, by the sunlight. So, yes, the ultraviolet light, we know that it burns and damages our skin. It's doing something similar to our tents as well. OK, well, thanks very much, Dave. Um, if we're you know, spending a couple of hundred pounds on that tent or a couple of hundred pounds on other gear, then um, it makes sense to look after it properly. Absolutely, yes. OK, thanks for your time. Thank you. Now, one of the most special places for long-distance backpackers and hillwalkers in the UK is the Noidart, which is a peninsula in the northwest of Scotland, often referred to as the last great wilderness. But the problem with that is it tends to put people off a little bit. You know, maybe you want to climb some hills, but perhaps a lot keen on camping for three or four nights in a row, or maybe you just want to avoid the midges in the summer. Um, but last summer when I was there, I began to realise there's actually a, a kind of growing, sustainable tourism industry there that offers you a little bit more luxury. And I think for people wanting to explore the Noidart, um, gives us some new options. And I've got Andy here with me from um, Dune in the Noidart. Andy, um, tell us about your your place. All right. Well, we um, we're based at Dune, which is on the very western coast of Noidart. Um, we've been there for over 20 years now, so we're a bit tucked away. Most people don't know about us. Most people come in to climb the bigger hills on the east of Noida. But um, we offer uh, accommodation and fully catered holidays and the ability to access um, Noida by boat, which is one of the biggest problems for people to visit Noida. It's, uh, it's remote, it is difficult to reach, especially on foot. Most people tend to pack in. Um, but we offer that little bit of extra comfort and uh, a good meal at the end of the day. Um, people stay with us uh, for a week at a time. We take them out, drop them in more remote parts of Noida. You pick them up at the end of the day, usually for a pint in the pub in the, the old forge in Inveree, and then back to Doom for a good feast. So. But that's quite important, isn't it? Because although a lot of the Noida is wilderness, that's sometimes played up a little bit. I mean... Yeah, you, you can spend three or four days without seeing a soul if you pick your route carefully, but it's, it's not so challenging that most walkers, hill walkers, or people involved, interested in diving, it's not so remote that they can't enjoy it. Absolutely not, no, no. I mean, there's a huge variety of walks available, and just um, uh, potterers, some lovely beaches to sit on. Um, the, the east is incredibly wild, very rocky country, big hills. But then there are um, tracks, paths that cut right through the middle of the hills for, for um, reasonable walkers, down to Land Rover tracks, lovely coastal paths, um, which most people could handle quite comfortably. And many of our visitors just want to come and get away from it all and sit and watch the sunset. Yeah, so. It's a perfect place for that. Now, you're on the west side of Zordot. Most hill walkers tend to go up towards Barrysdale and the Munros there, or up towards Southeast Bay. Um, but the west coast looks as if it's got stunning coastal paths and probably a little bit um, less explored. The, um, the coast is superb, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Lovely, very remote. Again, you're not going to meet people on the coast at all because 
what people do tend to head for the bigger hills. But there are some lovely smaller hills, a couple of Corbett's, uh, people are into the collecting mountains. Um, and these are obviously places that are less visited by people. Um, and of course, walking along the shore, there's always seals, birds, otters, regularly the sort of thing you're going to bump into just because it's quiet. So, yeah, it's fabulous on the West Coast, yeah. Now, uh, you'll also organise, I guess, um, uh, and support those of us who might want to do some organised activities. I see on the display boards here you've got diving and wildlife and walking. I mean, if I was hoping to plan a, a week in the Neudark, you'd, you'd help me well in advance, I guess, to get a range of what was possible. Absolutely, yeah, no problem. Um, we ourselves organise a variety of activities, walking, uh, diving, um, photography but we also have several companies who come and use us as a base uh, and use our local expertise and particularly our boats um, for led hill walking um, guided hill walking um, photography weeks by big names you know like Colin Pryor and Light and Land who actually like what we offer and can offer it then to their guests to come and get out to the islands or around Noided itself so we can offer quite a variety of options yeah sounds like the perfect place in which to explore this almost unique setting. Um, the Lloyd Art itself has got a fascinating recent history, hasn't it? I mean, it was, it was suffered dreadfully in the clearances. Oh, yes, it's got a quite, quite a fascinating history. I mean, the, the uh, indigenous population, the local people, were completely cleared down to the last man, although the the population didn't fall to zero because there was already at the time of the clearances quite a large um, inc population of incomers. Um, since then, its, it's, its fortunes have fluctuated with the estate that ran the, um, the land. Um, changes of people has been quite dramatic. Very few people have stayed there for long periods. But in the last 20 years, it started to settle down. Many of the families have lived there now for all of that time. Um, and five years ago, what was left of Noidat Estate, the old estate, was purchased by a community trust, which now manages the peninsula for the good of you know, everybody. Um, it still holds several sporting estates. Uh, there's land owned by the John Muir Trust, who are a major uh, conservation body, um, and one or two small little places like ourselves. But the bulk of Noida, the main village, is now uh, managed by the Noida Foundation. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fantastic story, and actually spending a little bit of time there in the summer, you begin to realise that um, it's quite, quite a heroic act, this community trust. I mean, because everybody involved in the trust and the peninsula seems to be determined to ensure that the place is developed sustainably, and that includes sustainable tourism as well. Absolutely, yeah. The, um, uh, it's, it's a really difficult uh, fork stick, you know, it's cleft stick, it's not to fall into the trap of over-exploiting things and everybody, I suppose the advantage that we have, like a lot of the small places, is that everybody lives there. Um, it's, it's never going to be over-exploited because people want what's there, they want to live in that sort of environment. The last thing you want to do is kill that off. Um, Inveries certainly, the main village, Inveries certainly now more uh, developed than it was 20 years ago, but it's certainly not what you call uh, busy, it's certainly not being down here in the NEC, it's, a, it's got a education this, but uh, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a place of some charm, it has to be said. And a population now of about 100, I think you said yesterday. Yep, yeah, we have a, a, a population of 100. Um, it's grown from about 80 in the period that the foundation have owned it. Uh, and they have the same issues as many rural places, lack of affordable housing and uh, lack of work. And, you know, those are the issues that people are trying to, to um, address. I was told in the summer that uh, of the population, I don't think anybody there was actually born in the Nordart, but there's, um, there's, there's a kind of thriving little school population now, which looks as if it's going to be quite a long-lived and sustainable community. Yep, the, um, the kids, as they say, the, uh, the, the children are the only locals. They were, all the kids were born there. Um, we have a son in the local primary school. He, uh, he is one of seven children. Uh, there's a thriving nursery school as well, um, but the, the rest of the people come from everywhere, some from England, some from Scotland, some from the islands, but nobody has lived there from, for more than about 30 years, so it's a very diverse population, but then um, people have a common interest, yeah. Now, the, uh, the old forge, the pub in Inverary, uh, likes to claim it's the uh, most... It's the remotest the most pub in mainland Britain. Yeah, the most remote pub in mainland Britain. That must make you the most remote hotel, I guess. Absolutely, yeah, yes. We're considerably more remote than the pub is, yes. <laughs> and, um, I mean, just looking at the photographs here, it looks as if it's a very, very hospitable place. I mean, the food is making me salivate at the moment. And you source most of your food and materials locally. Yes, uh, the, um, we're, we're very lucky to live where we are in terms of being able to supply local fresh food and it's all my wife and martin here they prepare the food in the restaurant uh, it's all produced on the day um from yeah the finest local produce you could get anywhere it's superb we're very very lucky yes and um, how long's the season really for us we start at the beginning of april and we end at the end of september um so like most places it's about a six month season um we do People do come and stay occasionally, sort of Hogmanay. Christmas time is very popular, but the winter's a good time to catch up with everybody and socialise and relax a bit more. So. Well, it's a fantastic place, the Noidart. It's the most remarkable landscape to walk through. The people there are incredibly hospitable, and Dune looks to me like a great find. How do we find out more about you on? Are you on the web? <laughs> of course, everybody is these days, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. We're, we have a website which is www. Dune, that's D-O-U-N-E hyphen noidat.co.uk Well Andy, thanks very much. Therefore you can uh, enjoy all of the benefits of one of the last builders he's written, but with a little bit of comfort at the end of the day as well. Thanks very much. Brilliant, thank you. Well the Noidart certainly is a very special place and if you haven't been there yet it's well worth thinking about planning a trip there over the next year or two. Judging from the photographs on the display stands, Andy and his colleagues offer a level of hospitality every bit as magnificent as the natural world that surrounds them. That brings us to the end of this third podcast from the Outdoor Show 2007. Join us shortly for our final podcast from Birmingham's National Exhibition Centre. Until then, I'm Andy Howell. Take care and happy hiking. This independent programme has been brought to you by theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. Cool.
Call our voicemail service now. 020 8133 9434. 